0: Hello and welcome to the Hack Dog Podcast. In today's episode, I've got Greg with me. Greg, for those who didn't see your previous episode, what are you doing these days?
1: Uh, I am currently the CISO, or I'm about to start as CISO, of Scout2E GmbH, which is a quite an interesting series B startup software as a service that does supplier discovery, mostly for large
0: manufacturing. Supply discovery, that sounds like an interesting area.
1: Um, yeah, it's really interesting, actually. It's, uh, hey, we've developed this turbine for nuclear power plants. Could you find us a company somewhere with these criteria that can build that? It's like, oh, sure, yeah, we'll do that for you. Apparently, normally, it's uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting business because apparently it's incredibly manual finding uh, suppliers in for manufacturing companies. Our clients are like Bosch, Unilever, Audi, Airbus, Philips, Siemens, SAP. Uh, just massive, you know, $100 billion. Market cap companies, they're all household names, uh, and, and their supply chains are absolutely massive.
0: Thankfully, my only involvement with suppliers is the occasional supplier security questionnaire.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: How does that go then? In terms of um the security side of supplier management, what what are your thoughts there? I think i've um I've put some thoughts on social media recently where I'm maybe not a fan of supplier security questionnaires. how How do you feel?
1: No, I think, yeah, I man. I think. I think it's garbage. I think it's like most uh, most GRC stuff, most auditing stuff. It's really skin deep. It's just tick some boxes, and it's not terribly valuable, to be honest. And um, you know, we currently have we're a startup, so we have some limitations. We're a small company, uh, about 150 people, but we're now investing quite heavily in security, setting up a whole function, obviously. And it's it's a bit of a playground for me. It's it's, it's my first kind of DevOps kind of organization. There's a lot of engineering, a lot of development. Uh, but we also have incredibly valuable intellectual property. So, you know, we have, you know, drawings from Audi and Airbus and General Electric, and uh, this, this huge amounts of intellectual property. And there's always this focus on it's funny how everything's compliance driven. So, there's all this focus about, oh, GDPR, we need to get all our GDPR. It's like we're B2B, we've got a 100 something clients, they have one or two accounts. So, what we have is a name and an email address times two for each client. Like this is the, the scope of our GDPR. God knows I and mean, we wouldn't want anyone to find out that John Smith over at Unilever, his email address is john.smith at Unilever.
0: That is a big part of security for me. I very often find organizations jumping on things like compliance requirements or regulatory requirements like that, which I'm not saying that they shouldn't do that. I just find that as you said, many organizations focus entirely on that. It's like, oh, GDPR, and then there's no space for anything else.
1: Yeah, and, and you know, this is my general gripe about the security industry is everyone tries to standardize and agree on what needs to be protected in the most general way possible. But then you fit it to your business. is like this isn't what's important. Like, yeah, of course we're going to protect their, their account information, that kind of stuff. But we've got like intellectual property that these customers have developed that's worth millions. Like, we need to protect that, and that's where the focus needs to be. And um, yeah, I think it's going to be a really interesting journey because we're going to build a program, the way I like to build a program. So you can take ISO and NIST and all that stuff and throw it in the bin, because we're going to look at all the business processes, all the platforms, make sure we have full visibility, discover the ways of working of absolutely every role in the company, and embed security through processes so that we have something effective and sustainable. And then we can very easily map it to ISO or NIST or TISAX, which is an automotive standard. Just tick the box for you know the compliance slash sales reasons in terms of actual security, really focus on the business, like what what are people doing? And again, security is so siloed, like most people don't really understand what's going on in the business. Like they don't really know that much about what's going on in the IT department, let alone sales, marketing, engineering, all that stuff.
0: As an industry, do you not think we've already solved security? Surely we have all of these compliance standards now. It isn't, okay. isn't security just done? Or do you perhaps think maybe we should be rethinking InfoSec? I do think. Tell us a little bit about that, then.
1: Well, th- thanks for, like, plugging my book in the cheesiest way possible. So, re- Rethinking InfoSec is, what well, I wrote about like, a year, year and a half ago? And it's basically, like, 250 pages of, of thoughts of, uh, bizarrely, mostly common sense. So, I, I have I have no college education. You know, I'm, I'm a high school dropout. Uh, I started hacking into stuff. Some feds gave me a job, and I kind of went from there. But I was always, I've always been more focused on defense than offense even as a teenage hacker 25 years ago, simply because you you dialed up to internet relay chat using your dial up and you had a public IP address directly on your box. There was no home router, there was no NAT, there was no firewall, there was none of that. So if your box wasn't locked down, you were getting owned the second you you <laughs> entered that, that hacking channel. And yeah, sure enough, once I joined, and after about a minute, this was back when hard drives were noisy, my hard drive started getting very, very noisy and my file system ate itself because I forgot to harden something. Um, so that was, it was always very much about, it's very competitive about like who can harden their box best. And while people are going out and hacking stuff for fun at large, they're always taking pot shots at each other. And I think that kind of reinforced my thinking of how do I, you know, I need to secure the system. There was a, there was a gap there between it's my own system. I've got full control. And then uh, I'm going through my kind of career mental growth path now. And, um, you start going into large organizations where you no longer have full control. Uh, and that, that was a challenge. And for a long time, I did what everybody else does, is just throw a bunch of security resource at it, you know, do pen tests, try to do remediation efforts, this and that. But it's the last mm, seven, eight years now, really focus on how can we build stuff properly in the first place? And then it's like, wow, well, yeah, it doesn't matter if you know how to build it because IT builds it. Like, I don't care. I'm going to go influence the IT department. Well, IT won't want to. But well, I'm going to talk to the COO then and then the CEO and give them like a valid reason. Do you know how much money we're spending on security remediation? You realize a lot of security issues are quality issues. So you've got a lot of vulnerabilities because your IT is really sloppy. But your IT being really sloppy usually means that it's poorly documented. You've got low agility because you're worried about unknowns. It's slowing down your whole business. Like, what if I streamline and simplify your IT, jack up the quality, make it really consistent? That's going to reduce 98% of my security concerns. And it's going to give you a cheaper, nimbler, more agile IT function. All of a sudden, it's like, hey, yeah, that sounds like a good idea.
0: I definitely want to dig into this this idea of how you describe uh, security issues as quality issues. So let's get into that. But just before we do, I did plug your book in the cheesiest way possible. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about that is now that it's been quite a while since since you wrote it, how, how do you feel about it? I imagine at the time it was a big achievement. But do you agree with everything you wrote? Do you think maybe things have changed?
1: I still and this is, this is like every time I do a podcast or record something, I never watch it. I cringe at like what I've done or said or put down and people are, are reading. And I still think it's interesting because I very much think that it's, it's very simplistic. Uh, I wrote it when I was at the University of Salford. So it was like absolutely zero resource. So all, all the stuff that most people, like the advanced tooling that people play with day in, day out in security, we didn't even have any of that. So it's it's very simplistic, and I feel like I'm almost embarrassed by it. But at the same time, it's so often those simple basics that we don't get right. Like people will have, you know, spend millions on EDR and seam. like you, you don't have basic asset management set up. Like you cannot you don't know 10% of your assets. And when I do force myself to reread it, usually because someone found a bunch of typos, uh, and I finally ironed out. And I get the really big edit like a month ago. I'm actually surprised how, yeah, it is actually all still relevant. It's not as bad as I thought it was. But yeah, because to me, it's it's still, we, we're trying to fix things so far downstream when like there's more basic things that you can fix and do right that really negate and alleviate the need to do all the stuff that makes up the bulk of the security industry nowadays.
0: So you say security issues are quality issues. What do you mean by that? Well, if
1: your code is crap, you're prob- you're gonna have a bunch of bugs, and some of those bugs are gonna be security issues. I mean, I-, I guarantee if you have security bugs, you have other types of bugs as well. You've got usability bugs. We in security don't hear about them, because that's you know the end user's problem. But you know, code quality is code quality. And same thing with systems, you know, if you build them, if you build them properly, they'll be more stable. Building things properly, both from a quality and security um standpoint it's, it's kind of like the same the same reasoning behind them like you have to it's almost like threat modeling like you have to think how is this going to work what's the big picture what's this going to interact with what's the performance like what happens in this scenario that scenario and that can be a usability or um a security slam you know the, the mindset's quite similar
0: you say that like uh like a nothing comment though just off the shoulder like um, oh we just need to build more quality into our products if it's if it's such a simple thing, why are companies struggling with it?
1: This, this is stuff I've not actually talked about in a long time. I think a big part of it is just the the siloed nature of security, for starters, and and IT as well. I think IT tends to be quite siloed from the business, less so than security is, but still in many cases you have an IT function that's there as a silo, delivers a service, and that's it. They're not in tune with what the business needs. It, Quite often it's a fiefdom, they maintain stuff. Um, you know, to me, so th- this is weird, but it's actually becoming more common at Scout be I'm taking over the IT function. IT ports into security. I'm not the first person to do it. But it's funny because if you do it that way around, there's no there's no conflict. I mean, the, the worry is normally, well, security just blocks everything, but I don't want to block things. I want to optimize, simplify, streamline, high quality level altruistic to the business. Like, I don't want to slow things down, guys. I want things to work well for you and be available and that kind of stuff.
0: I know I hear from a lot of um, security professionals that one of the things they always complain about is not finding out about things until the last minute or finding out about something after it's gone live. So I guess that's feeding into what you said a second ago about the siloed nature of security. But I guess you've, you've maybe gone somewhere to addressing that. If you're saying IT is reporting into security, then I presume hopefully things don't get missed.
1: Yeah, I mean, cause, cause I, again, I care about the quality and the security of things and I care about the business. So, you know, I was looking at maybe rehoming the uh, the website to maybe not have the cycles uh, internally instead of missing things. So let's rehome the website and you find this web company. It's like, oh, well, you know what? They also do SEO optimization and they do CDN and we could propose contents in localized languages with localized contact numbers. And we could show business cases that are local to whatever regions accessing the site. And there's all these like sales and marketing things. If you think more from a business context, I think like, it's my business. I care about the business. Like I want every, I care about every department. I want every department to work as efficiently as possible with as many synergies. I want us to spend as little money as possible. I don't want a 10 million pound security budget. Like I want to do this as lean as possible, um, both for hiring and, and tooling. I've already been told by HR like your your salary figures don't don't add up. They're they're too low. And I'm about ten percent under budget from the too low budget.
0: Well, what do you mean by that? Because I think some people could hear that and uncharitably interpret that as you're underpaying people. And I presume that's not what you're meaning. So can you can you dig a little bit more into that about what what do you mean by running the team lean?
1: So let me just finish the first part, which create value wherever you can. Don't spend so much money when you don't have to, I always prefer getting traction to budget. You need some budget. But if your operational efficiency with the money you have is 20%, well, you can increase your efficiency and cut your budget down by half and still contribute more to the business in terms of assurance. You should be focusing on that. You should be trying to save the business as much money as you want. And when you start doing that and people see that you're doing this instead of being this big cost center, well, guess how you get traction from the top to be involved in everything and be involved early on in, in projects and when your CEO tells your marketing people, no, no, talk to Greg before you launch any initiatives. But Greg's security, talk to Greg. That's that's how you build that traction, especially at C-level. Like, you have to take a, a business focus uh, to everything. In terms of um, underpaying, uh, I don't want to say underpaying, but a lot of people, like, the work culture sucks, and job description sucks, and HR sucks, and everything sucks uh, in info hiring managers don't get involved. They rely on HR to write job specs. They have no idea what they're about. The job specs don't actually describe the job. And, you know, it's like, oh, we need X x years. Like a year of experience is a completely irrelevant measurement. I
0: so agree. And yeah, I just, I I, I agree that years of experience is, is a terrible metric. We see it in, in the pen testing space, definitely, where um there's a big difference between somebody who's been 100% pen testing for a certain period of time versus somebody where it's been a part of their role but they both might have on their CV 5 years experience and it's like you know, you, that's you not that's not useful to me
1: public utility company clicking the same button day in day out 20 years experience and you got someone like 6 months who's just been sucking up the internet knowledge and trying and learning absolutely everything
0: and the passion and and
1: yeah yeah but I've, I've learned like I've met like 18 year olds who are like Holy shit, like we've got like 50-year-old people in the office that don't know half the stuff you know. Uh so yeah, you know, years is totally irrelevant. I posted a job spec this morning for a GRC role, and I said uh, experience. What, what did I say? Let me let me pull it up. Boom, boom, boom. So I, I had to close it after one hour, my job posting, because I already had to way too many applicants, uh, or several good applicants. And I said, experience, enough to do the job. Certifications, I don't give too farts. And I got great people. And I got the right people because I didn't, it was a GRC type role, but I don't want that box ticker GRC mentality. And quite often, the longer people have been in security, and this applies to governance, it applies to engineering, applies to many different roles, the more indoctrinated they become and the less open to new ideas and doing things differently. And I definitely want to do things differently because the status quo isn't working in case you haven't noticed. Um, So these people that have all this experience and therefore are expensive and justify all this money. To me, strategically, they're not very useful because you're just the same old thing over and over again. Like I need you to adapt to my business and our way of working and our different philosophy. And they're like, no, my job is this. I will do this in every single business. Like, no two businesses are the same. Like, I need people to adapt. And then I've got young people. I was literally, literally just got off the, the phone for a candidate. That guy's a former police officer. And he's just used to figuring stuff out. And he's like, yeah, I got into this. But I, like, I hate this tick-boxing stuff. Like, it doesn't make sense to me. Like, you really need to, you know, need the, you know community policing. You really need to you know, get the people on board and this and that. And I was like, that's what I need. That's what I need. But you meet candidates like that, and no one wants them because they don't have five years experience in a bone dry GRC role. They don't tick the box. But someone with like 10 years experience will ask ADK. They can't get a job paying them 30 because they don't have the experience. No one will hire them. And then we moan about the cybersecurity skills yet. And I was like, dude, I can give you 65 and I'll hire you tomorrow because I think you're fucking fantastic. And you'll be making 100 two years from now. So am I underpaying him? Technically, but I'm also paying him half as much more as anybody else is willing to give him. So how do you want to slice it?
0: So you think that cybersecurity hiring is pretty broken?
1: So Basically, I, I can save my company money. I can get really, really talented uh, individuals. I mean, I, I'm building an entire team of, you could argue, misfits. Like almost, there's, there's one through and through cyber person in there. I need a DevSecOps guy, and I'm employing him as a head of. That's the only through and through cyber person. They all have different backgrounds. They all have different perspectives. they got skills from you know, policing, teaching, uh, mentoring, uh, marketing, business, uh, and that's that's what's going to make them so effective. They have fewer on paper cyber skills, but they're going to be so much more effective of in terms of being able to deliver. And the efficiency we're going to get out of the security work, the amount of buy-in and traction. So they almost always take traction over over more budget. They're really going to be able to fundamentally change things and engage people in the business. And that's way more important to me because the the end goal is like, I don't want to have this constant churn of detecting issues, trying to remediate issues. You know, bone scan remediation, bone scan remediation, pen test remediation. No, I don't, I don't don't want to do that. I want you know obviously you still do the, the pen testing and the one but only as a validation that i've done stuff right like i expect to find nothing and if i found something i'm not just fixing that vulnerability i'm asking why is it there What what process did we screw up what cultural change what education do we need like i want to address it way further upstream because then i will fix that issue and i'll probably fix a hundred others that I'm, I'm not even aware of so yeah shift shift everything left
0: what, what do you mean by that you say upstream and then you say shift everything left I've always used upstream, but apparently the market term is shift left. So what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by um, shift to left? I'd be upstream, I mean, closer to the source. So what about people who are at the lower end of cybersecurity then, either breaking in or they're, they're in the industry, they've been here a couple of years. If they wanna make sure that they work for an organization like yours, where security is important and security is managed properly as opposed to just a box ticking exercise, how do they make sure when they're going through hiring, they find the right company?
1: I don't think there's enough of those companies for everyone. In like fact, there's there's very few, which is which is the bad news. And chances are, like it, it's quite sad, really, because I think a lot of the people that have the right character traits and the right drive and motivation and critical thinking and out of the box thinking abilities tend to be overlooked. And in fact, they're actively discriminated against because they don't tick the box, which makes them an absolute bargain for for people like me, which is great. Um, so that's quite difficult, uh, and the HR process really chews people up, I mean, you're basically an ATS filter, and, but I can't get through an ATS filter, I'm a high school dropout, I have zero certifications, but I got a job as a CISO, and I haven't even showed them my resume, it's a shame, because I paid 20 quid, 20 quid to get it done, and and all of that is because of, I think, reputation, and networking definitely i mean that's the system is so broken the only short-term answer i can i can give is network even that takes time to build up but you can in one or two years you can get a really good network and i think the perfect example is like jj davies who is basically a junior analyst he's only been in the industry for a couple of years but so many people at the kind of bottom end of the pyramid just starting out so many people relate to what he's doing that i mean i've got 16 17 000 followers on linkedin and i remember looking at him like a year ago and he had like three but his posts were still getting two three four times the amount of interaction than in my post huge and now he's got i think more followers than i do so he's got like 10 times more interaction than i do even with a similar because people really really relate to that kind of just trying to break in it's like why why is it so hard like we're all moaning about the skills gap and we can't find people i really don't find it difficult to find people And a lot of people say it's because they're looking for the unicorns, like they want all these years of experience and certifications and this and that. I actually think those, even if you did find someone that ticked all those boxes, I think most of them would actually be really bad candidates. Chances are, like someone doesn't tick half the boxes, have a different background, a different perspective, and is just really keen, probably a better candidate. Maybe not on day one, but three months in, they will.
0: So you, you talked about solving this problem from a hiring point of view. But when you get this team together, you know, you've you've made all of these hires, you get the team in. How do you grow them? How do you how do you build those skills? How do you build them into these professionals?
1: I mean, for me it's very simple. I don't I rarely even truly define roles. Like I started out with six roles and I found people based on those roles. Well, you know what, I only advertised two of the roles. And one, I've got like a variety of resumes, and I was I got so many because it was like a junior role. And I had three junior roles. And I was like, you know what? No, I'm not hiring you for this role, but you're actually perfect for this other role that I haven't even advertised yet. So I ended up filling three roles, only advertising one. Uh, and actually adapted the role slightly. So, hey, this this person's really, really strong, but maybe not so much in this area. But I can expand this other role to fill that in. So I can I can tune, you know, it's more about the person, how much they can deliver, like focus on what's their value as a person and craft the role around it. And that will that will change over time, uh, depending on you know business priorities and where we're going, the direction we're going, but also their personal interests. Like, hey, I'm more interested in doing SecOps, so I want to do development. Or I want to do this, or I want that. It's like, all right, we'll, we'll slowly, do, slowly move you into that. Like, I've got a guy now who's a DevSecOps, but he wants to become a CISO. He wants to become a head of and then a CISO. So I was like, well, I've got a lot of short-term DevSecOps requirements, but after that, I can definitely move you into that kind of function and mentor you through it. So it's it's all fluid. So to me, it's all about and I guess that's that's most of all the mentality I look for. It's like, what's what's the freaking problem that we're facing today? What do we need? What skills do we have and who can help in what way? We'll figure it out.
0: It's interesting to hear about when, when you said adapting the role to the candidate, um, because that that is something that that the does. And that's something that you know, our first conversation with the candidate is focused around what what are you looking for? What is the role that you're looking for? Because of course, we want to find out if the person is okay. going to be a good fit. But secondarily, exactly as you say, what, what we have, you know, penciled in for what we need right now, we, we could adapt that. If we're hiring two, three different people, we could oh, this person really has this interest or this skill, we can we can change those things. And the number of times that we've talked about cybersecurity hiring practices on this podcast, and I don't think anybody else has pointed out, adapt the role to the candidate or adapt the role to the person that you're speaking to. Do you
1: know Robin Bailenga? Mm-hmm. I really, really love what she's doing with human factors. And I didn't have an awareness person in my program. I actually merged two roles together just to be able to create something and I really want to give her a job. Because I think especially in terms of you know, we're a very young company, we have uh, a lot of very young developers, they haven't had the training uh, and experience from previous employers, uh, and they've been operating, you know, the company's been around for a few years, they've been operating without that kind of uh, leadership and mentoring for some time, so they've maybe developed some bad habits, or uh, not necessarily bad habits, but they don't necessarily know what good looks like, so there's, there's more like psychological convincing to do, and she's also I love, you know, she used to work for Southwest. Southwest Airlines has one of the best business cultures in the world. It's amazing. It's always used as an example. So that's something she can bring to the table. She used to be a small business a business owner, a relatively large business, uh, you know, good size SME. So she's got a lot of business experience. She can speak to the business. Like, there's all these extra things that are, are really valuable, and they're completely, I mean, completely outside the initial role. Uh, but it's like, well, this this person can bring business value, Well, why don't I create something for you know, it's, it's, it's the goose that lays the, the golden egg. Like, I'm not, not going to take it because I don't need eggs right now. I was like, oh, yes, yeah, let's, let's sell some eggs. <laughs> so, yeah, if, if, you can, if you can make, obviously there's limitations, but if you can make it work, make it work. And I think by, by having this motley crew and tweaking things around, and in some ways substantially from the original on paper plan, I actually have a better, stronger team addressing more issues than what I set out with because I have, quote, imperfect candidates. You know, I think I'm going to end up with like a police officer, a teacher, a businesswoman, uh, air hostess, uh, yeah, lo- loads of like different backgrounds. But And it it sounds weird, but if you are inside Scoutly and you look at the history of the company, the things I see, the cultural issues I've identified, the challenges we face, uh, and not so much from a technical standpoint, because tech is easy. Tech is the same everywhere, but it's, you know, it's the cultural and organizational and the, the influencing that needs to happen. They're a flipping dream team. But on paper, they look like this is ridiculous. Why are you hiring these people? And it's that that lack of kind of mental flexibility of figuring out what are the real root causes and what you really need to change in the organization and find the right people for that. And I, ironically, I think once you start doing that, you find way more valuable candidates at lower salaries and they're way more available.
0: So you've talked about, how you do hiring but i'm curious of the other side of things when you're looking for a role how how do you make sure that the company is a good fit for you specifically how do you know that the leadership team is a team that you can work with
1: talk to them (laughs) (laughs) it's a good question and i I must say i really we i mean scout had a bit of a turnaround in in the leadership team i really it's very very culture focused there's this very like big understanding that like the culture has to be right there has to be uh, a huge amount of uh, emotional safety is huge uh, scout is a company and i love this you will get further ahead saying i'm shit at this than i'm flipping great at this we want people to be comfortable we want people to be open yeah it's just um, it's hard to define but
0: for for those who've never heard the term before what do you mean by emotional safety
1: you're safe like you don't you don't have to be afraid of something if you don't know something you just you just say it if you screwed up you say it you know, we don't want, we. that's far healthier because that's something like, oh, you've identified an issue, we can, we can solve the issue and then things will be better. That's how you grow. Um, when you have a culture where you have to hide mistakes, you have to hide inadequacies, which happens a lot in security because people don't really know what the hell goes on in security because it's this black box. You, you very rapidly create a toxic culture. Like I've seen like security organizations like really, really toxic, you know, total fiefdom, Churning through a lot of money, but not providing any actual assurance to the organization.
0: Yeah, there's not only uh, the problem of toxic cultures, but also um, stale cultures. I was reading this morning about a company who Implemented a feedback system so that um, colleagues could give each other feedback. You know, the idea of like, I think you worked well on that project. Here's some, you know, what I would have done and and helping each other grow. The problem is when they implemented the feedback system, nobody left each other feedback. And when they were talking about that, it was like, well, if I leave feedback for this guy, I don't know what's going to happen. If I don't leave feedback for him, I do. So the safe option in their their cultural mentality was take no action. So they didn't do anything.
1: I think, you know, I like, I'm very people focused. Like I used to get like a lot lot of flack from like so much of HR is there a lot of a lot of HR organizations I think are still a bit in the stone age. It, it's rare that I see really good HR leaders. um But it's you know they're there. Oh, we have to do all these things, and they just create all these policies and tick boxes. Like and these these are the very this kind of like drudgery is the very thing that kills positive culture. Like you these things should be happening naturally. How do
0: you think HR should be involved in terms of of hiring then? Because you mentioned a couple of times now that it sounds like you feel HR gets in the way if you're doing your job of hiring the right people. So how do you think they should be involved?
1: Yeah, I do. I mean, you know, like, like the DNI stuff. And it's like, look, I'm, I'm completely meritocracy based. And I've got, you know, an above average, significantly above average percentage of minorities and stuff. And it's like, I really don't care. Like, I've, I've never considered, you know, any of the legal tick boxes and considerations that I'm supposed to do because I refuse to categorize people as a label. Uh, and yet I wound up with a very, well, I wound up with an incredibly diverse team in all the areas that matter, which aren't covered by d policies. And fortunately, it also happens to cover the legal boxes. So what I think, I think HR should be more about leading business culture. I think it should be about, you know, educating the hiring managers, teaching, you know, leadership skills, teaching empathy, communication, make your hiring managers better people, better leaders. If you did that, instead of focusing on bureaucracy, I think that would drive a lot more value. Like I, I think you know, some places call it a people department, uh, which I think is, is almost a better name for it. But then again, THG calls there as a people department. So that's not a good example.
0: You uh, you mentioned uh, educating hiring managers. So I'm curious, have you ever had management training?
1: No, but I've had a lot of really crap managers that I didn't want to emulate.
0: This is the reason that I, that I asked is, I mean, it's it's rare whenever I ask people that question to ever hear anybody say, yes, I was taught to be a manager or yes, you know, I had somebody run me through these things. But you mentioned um, educate your hiring managers. So, so what do you mean by that? What are, what are companies missing in that area?
1: Well, it's, it's weird because, for example, I all so deal with junior resources. But i still want to expose them to these things i still want them to be aware of it and uh you know when we do this chat at b-sides for amy we're going to talk about you know networking to go around the broken system but also what's broken and how can we fix it and this and that so hopefully in one day five years time some of them will be managers and they won't be you know uh continuing this problem you know they'll they'll apply something to it so it's, it's, it's almost natural. Like you, you want to impart it on other people. Uh, and to be honest, like I've not had management training, but I've been doing this for 23 years and it's only been the last few years I finally figured it out. And because of, you know, just crappy personal situations and bouts of inspiration, whatever. So I don't know how you train it, but I'm sure you, you can, But culture tends to breed culture. Like if I, like, I want to impart it on my people. So if you have like a CHRO who's passionate about it, she's going to want to impart it across, or he or she's going to want to impart it across the organization. I said, she, because we have a sheep. Yeah, it's it's like, to me, it's more about people. And it's, it's things are defined by culture, which we try really hard to like create all these rules and governance and stuff. But if you just do it in culture, it just happens automatically. And it's actually more consistent because no one tries to kind of go around the process because it's annoying. So, no, This is just the culture. This is how we do things. Everyone wants to emulate a good thing. Everyone wants to emulate something that they enjoy. Uh, once you have those values, you want to impart them on other people, and uh, like, I love that concept. It, it's completely intangible, but it really, really works. It really drives, it drives satisfaction, it drives trust, it drives result, it drives productivity, it drives growth. I think more people need to focus on that kind of human side
0: of things. Thank you very much for being on the show. But before we sign off, what's what's the parting message? What do you want to leave the audience with? What, what's your your farewell message to the to the listeners? Don't be a dick. And where can people find out more about you and the work that you do?
1: You can find me on LinkedIn, Greg
0: Vandergast. Feel free to connect. Greg, thank you for being on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.